do want to say good morning. Um, I feel increasingly like I need to introduce myself in my own church. Um, and so for those of you I haven't met, especially those that sit over there, we sit over here in the back, and it's sometimes hard to get over to see everyone. If I haven't personally introduced myself, it's not from lack of desire, it's from a lack of opportunity. Um, but I do want to say uh, good morning and welcome for that. Um, I just want to share briefly a little bit of history, keep it short, about my theme for this morning. Uh, some of you know, others don't know me at all, but um, I grew in a, in a Christian home and been in church all my life, and thankful for the heritage and the churches that I've been in and the knowledge that I've been given. But the past few years have been, been challenging, work-related, and some other things. And I found myself this summer, just last past summer, just feeling that, God, nothing is stable in life, and I need something stable. And I know Christ is stable, but I'm not finding the stability. Kind of like when Peter stepped out of the boat and he sank when he took his eyes off Christ. And I just needed to know Christ better. And so I'm very thankful that in these past nine months or so, God's really opened my eyes to some new um, things that were always there, nothing new un- under the sun in a sense. But, and many of us were privileged last fall to sit under the teaching of Sinclair Ferguson in his course, Union with Christ. And I've been encouraged by how that has encouraged many of us who were in that class and my, my, I would say that my, my affection and my, my delight in Christ has grown as a result of that. Um, I had so much to say this morning, um, but I wasn't quite sure how to put it all together. And, and so a part of what we'll talk about this morning is the idea of union with Christ. But overall, I just want to focus on Christ himself, the person of Christ. Not so much his work, but his person, the person of Christ. When Rodney read just a bit ago about Galatians, Paul's concern was with the Galatians that they were leaving the gospel. He said, but I'm concerned that you so quickly turn from him, not from the gospel primarily, but from him. And that is the the essence of what we want to talk about this morning is how do we relate to Christ as a person and what difference does it and should it make in our lives? My my great fear this morning as I thought of a metaphor was that having seen and, and learned so much about Christ in these recent months, that it reminds me of a story of, of something that happened when our children were small, that one of our children had made one of these um, shutter fly, or shutter stock, uh, whatever, the, uh, the little, where you can make a mug with pictures. And she was so anxious to bring it to my parents because it was a gift for her grandparents. And when she got, you know, we drove all the way to Maryland, and then she tripped on the sidewalk going in the front door and broke the mug. And she, w- she was so upset. And my concern this morning is that I'll do that because I've got so much that I want to share, and I hope that it comes through, uh, not from my story, but from the gospel and from the scriptures. Our, 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 our passage this morning is Philippians 3.8. And this is not going to be primarily an exposition of Philippians 3.8. I'll be in the New King James. It's, I've had this Bible for 20 years. I'd be lost anywhere else. Um, so hopefully, the, the, the words will line up close enough if you have another version. But in Philippians 3.8, we read something of Paul's heart. And he says passion in life is he, he wants to know Christ. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. Not so much an exposition of this verse, but getting into my, Paul's mind and heart and head and understanding what is it about Christ that made him want to know Christ. And how did he get to where he wanted to know Christ? And so have that passage in front of you. But what I want to consider, many of us know the book of Philippians. And we think the book of Philippians, we think about joy. It's the book about rejoicing. It's the book about joy. It's a, you know, it, we, we do. We see that verse. We see those words, related words about 16 times in four short chapters. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice evermore. Rejoice in joy and all these things. But I would suggest that that is not the theme of Philippians. Joy shows up 16 times. Now, but if you take the name of Christ, Lord, Lord Jesus, Christ, and all the pronouns, him, himself, and his, and you, you count them all up, it comes to 57 times in the book of Philippians that Paul talks about Christ. Paul is obsessed with Christ, and I mean that in a good way. He's obsessed with Christ, and that's why he's calling you to rejoice, because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and that's why he is so much concerned that people love and appreciate Christ. And we see this in the book of Philippians. I'm not going to turn to everything. You, you probably know the book of Philippians sort of well. Philippians 1.18, Paul says, Even when others preach Christ from false motives, I rejoice. Now, as long as they were preaching him truly, even if they were doing it out of selfishness and bad desires, Paul was like, I don't care. I love him so much. He is so important. Even if they're doing it to misrepresent me, even if they're doing it for false motives, as long as the message of Christ is getting out, I rejoice. That's how much I rejoice in Christ. 
And he says in 121, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says, I have, a desire to de- I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And he says, rejoice. Yes, rejoice in the Lord. He says that twice. And then he says in our verse, verse Philippians 3.8, I count everything but loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. I count everything but loss. Now, I always read that verse as like, I have to make this conscious decision that all this stuff around me that I'm finding interesting, I, I'd have to, I have to say that's, that's, Jesus is better, and so I'm going to make this conscious decision to say these things are like worthless to me. But I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. What Paul is getting at is I have become so consumed with Christ, I've lost interest in everything else. I count it but lost because I just don't care anymore. And I believe that I've started to see that in my own life in these months, and that's what my burden would be for you. Because as you, as you fall in love, and I can say that in a, in a respectful way, as you fall in love with Christ, your appetite and your hunger for everything else, it just goes out the window. You just don't care anymore. Movies, television, I'm not saying these things are wrong, but I'm saying your, your desire and your hunger, as Christ starts to fill your soul, you, you, you find that your appetite dries up for these other things. And that's what Paul is saying. That He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He counts them all as loss. What does he count as loss? In the context, he's saying all my hard-earned morality, all the respectability that I once had as a leading Pharisee, all the prestige, all the popularity I had as a religious leader, that is all rubbish. It's all trash to me. I don't care anymore. More than that, not just those things, he said, I count everything but loss for knowing Christ. I, count, I, suffer them, I, count the, I, I suffer the loss of all things, and I count them as trash. And the word there is used for the scraps you feed to a dog, dog scraps, the, 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 the garbage no human's going to eat. And metaphorically, even it applies to the dung or the, to waste products, manure. It's that time of year if you live in York County, at least where we are. He counts that that's how all his righteous, all his, everything, that's what he considered as rubbish and refuse because he wanted to gain Christ. And again, this is not an act of the will. Willing myself to want Jesus and to put these other, make these other things worthless. As he came to know Christ, those other things fell away. I just don't care anymore. Now, how do you feel when Paul says this? Maybe you say, who cares? What a weirdo. Why would anybody count all the respectability, all the worldly gain? Why would anybody count that as loss? That just, I can't relate to that. That just sounds strange. Forget it. I'm not going to pay attention. Or maybe you're like many Christians, and you say, that sounds nice, but it's not me. That's not me. I just don't feel about Jesus that way. I don't have a desire to depart this life and to be with Christ. But what does Paul's obsession with Christ have to do with you and me today? I want you to consider that Paul didn't always feel this way about Christ. If you think back to his history, Paul did not always feel this way about Christ. If you think back, now this morning, because there's a lot to cover, I'm not going to turn to passage by passage. Believe me, it's in here. I'll throw some references out. We may turn to some places, but a lot of ground to cover. But if you know Paul's history, we know in Acts, the early part of Acts, as Stephen stands up, and Stephen is killed for his faith, and, Paul is, and Saul is consenting to his death, and it says, as, in, in Acts 8, verse 3, it says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging them off, men and women, off into prison. And it says elsewhere there in that section, it says he was breathing out threats and violence against the church. Paul did not always say, I want to know Christ and I count everything else as rubbish. There was a point in his life when he hated Christ and he wanted to destroy him. In Acts 26.9, later in Paul's life, as he's standing in front of King Herod Agrippa, he's thinking back to his former life and how he used to think of Christ. And he says in Acts 26, 9, he said, Yes, I once thought that I must do many things contrary to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. That's how I used to feel about Jesus. And he doesn't feel that way anymore by the time he's in this jail and he's writing to the Philippians. So what changed Paul? What changed Paul from a despiser, from one who's trying to destroy the church, destroy the name of Jesus, to one who wanted nothing else but to know Christ? And I would suggest that he came to meet Christ and to see him as he truly is. He came to meet Christ and to see him as he truly is. Now, when I say that, there's a danger. Because immediately we say, well, great. Yeah, Paul got to see Christ. We don't get to see Christ. 
And so therefore, I can't get to know Jesus the way that Paul got to know Jesus. And if I could just see Jesus the way that Paul saw Jesus, then I'd know Jesus and I'd love him too. And that can discourage us from pursuing the knowledge of Christ because we think we've got to see him with our eyes. But seeing Jesus in the flesh isn't what changed Paul. You think of Judas. Judas spent three years with Jesus. He saw him eye to eye and he betrayed him. You think of Pilate who knew that Jesus was innocent and yet condemned him to death. You look at the Pharisees who saw Jesus raise the dead and then they tried to kill Lazarus because they tried to get rid of the evidence that Jesus had raised the dead. So seeing Jesus with your eye is not what's going to transform your view of Jesus. And I would suggest that even Paul himself, I don't think that Paul, a leading Pharisee, let Jesus have three years of ministry without Paul seeing him face to face. The Bible doesn't mention that, but I have to think that Paul, at least from a distance, is watching Jesus preach. Jesus, Paul doesn't show up until Acts in the scriptures, but Paul is a leading figure in Israel and Judaism in this day. And I have to think that Paul saw Jesus at some point there before, during Jesus' earthly ministry. But I suggest that we cannot do that. And I would encourage you to realize that many Christians who never saw Jesus in the flesh, many Christians who've lived after the New Testament times, have come to think of Jesus the way that Paul did. Samuel Rutherford, one of my favorite people from history, he was a Presbyterian, he was a, a leader in Scotland, and even if you know anything about people from Scotland... They're not ones that sit on the sidelines. They're not soft. Uh, they're not uh, gentle people, typically. And so Rutherford was a leading pastor in his day. He was exiled because of his preaching. He would stand up to the king. He would stand up to parliament. He didn't really care. And when he says what I'm about to say, I want you to think this is not some sentimental uh, guy sitting around in a seminary writing poetry about Jesus. This is a rugged, hard individual. Sometimes we as men, we... we, we it's hard for us to relate. We have this image of Jesus as he's soft and he's gentle and the children, the women come to him. But me as a guy, I can't relate to that. Later, we'll get to a little bit talk about Christ's humanity. And that's why I want to, to disabuse us of, of this idea that I can't relate to him. So here is Samuel Rutherford, a leading, strong, solid pastor, a rugged individual saying this. He said, oh, my Lord Jesus, if I could be in heaven without you, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and have you still, it would be heaven to me because you are all the heaven that I want. This is a man who never saw Jesus eye to eye, never saw him face to face. And yet he came to know Christ in such a way that he would say that. And he would, he, Rutherford would go on to, on to say, I urge you to a closer communion with Christ and a growing communion with Christ. There are curtains to be opened in Christ that we have never seen before. If you think that you, I got Jesus figured out, let me find something more interesting. It's because you haven't even started to understand who Jesus is. And so that was what I would encourage you this morning. Here's a man who never saw Jesus face to face and yet grew in his love and knowledge of him. And so I have good news. Because it wasn't seeing Christ with his eyes that made Paul come to know him and love him so well, we don't have to see him with our eyes to come and see and know him like Paul, like Samuel Rutherford, and like many other Christians have done. So there is hope and there is encouragement. But what did Paul come to see? What was it about Christ that made Paul change his view? Obviously, we understand no, man comes to the, no one comes to me unless the Father draw him. No one opens, we need the Spirit to open our eyes and understanding. So I'm not, I'm not dismissing that. But looking at it from the human side, what was Paul's, what was his change of vision? I have three things I want to consider this morning. I would suggest that first, I'll, I'll recap these in a, in a row, and then I'll go through them point by point. Paul came to see that there was no one like Christ. Paul came to see that there was no one else like Christ. And then Paul came to see that his own identity was changed by knowing Christ. His own identity was changed by knowing Christ. And lastly, he came to see that the most glorious thing in the world was to be with Christ. So first, Paul came to see that there was no one like Christ. Christ is perfect humanity and eternal deity all, t all in one, all in one package, if you will. And you might say, can knowing somebody change my life? I mean, money in my bank can change my life. A more comfortable lifestyle would change my life. But can knowing an individual change my life? And I would suggest you already know that that's the case. Not, I mean, maybe knowing the right person can get you stuff. Maybe the right person can open doors for you and get you a job. And so that's true in one sense. But I would suggest even on a deeper level, knowing someone changes our lives for good or for bad. 
What captivates your attention in people? Why do you follow people on Facebook or Pinterest or TikTok or YouTube or wherever people follow? Why do you follow sports stars? What feelings does it give you to know their statistics or to see, to watch the replays? There's something deep inside of us that we identify with, and as we watch someone else, we connect with them, and it begins to change how we feel about ourselves. There's usually what intrigues us about someone else is when there's something unique or something different or something unusual. There's mystery involved. And I would suggest that that is what is involved in coming to know Christ. There has never been an individual in history so interesting, so mysterious, so hard to figure out, so wonderful, and so full of glory as Jesus Christ. Christ was both perfect humanity and eternal deity in one. And we know that he existed as God, the Son, throughout all eternity before he came and was born as a baby at Bethlehem. And although his existence began when there was no beginning, before there was a beginning, his beginning never began. Even though that's true, I want to look at his humanity first. And the reason I want to do that is because Paul first came to know Jesus through his humanity. We saw that he opposed Jesus of Nazareth. And I think he's calling him Jesus of Nazareth because at that time, that's how he saw him, as just Jesus of Nazareth. Not as God, not as the Son of God, not as the Messiah, but as simply Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is from Judah. I'm from Benjamin. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? He's just a human. And I would suggest, if you think about how people saw Jesus in the New Testament, many of them rejected him because they saw he was just human. Many of them said, he's just a man. Why should I follow him? Why does his death have any significance for me? As we are educated, as we come to know the Bible, as we come to know Scripture, we have to hold his humanity and his deity 100% full on all the time. And because our brains are challenged, we often tend to, min- to, to, to uh, accentuate one and, and minimize the other, and it's very hard for us to keep those things in balance. And I would suggest that sometimes we don't grasp how truly human Jesus was. And I think that makes it hard for us to relate to him. As I've thought through these things in recent weeks, I've started to wonder if we don't love Christmas so much because it's the one time a year that Jesus feels like he's close by. Emmanuel is God with us in December. And I think there's something that resonates. Jesus feels a little bit closer at Christmas time because we're talking about the incarnation. But for the rest of the year, it feels like he's up there somewhere. And I think for much of my life, talking to Sharon and others, he's always felt a little distant, a little up in heaven, a little bit not human, a little bit out of where I can, can identify with him. But I want us to think that he is human, more human than we ever imagined. Jesus, Paul in Philippians 2, and that's one page we can turn to because it's close to Philippians 3, it's easy to get to. Um, Paul has this amazing, and I would say almost, if I can say it, almost frustrating way of talking about deep theology. Because he's always talking about something practical, and to illustrate the practical, he opens the window in this deep theological mystery that we want more information about that he doesn't give us. And so Paul's talking to the church, and he's saying, I want you to be humble and to serve someone else and not think of yourself first. And the best example that I can give you of that is what Jesus did. Jesus was God himself, existing as as God for all eternity, and yet he humbled himself and became obedient to death. And he took on the form of a servant. He says in, in Philippians 2, in verse 5 and 6, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it something to be grasped to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, if we read that, we can think, well, he came in the form of a man, or he came in the appearance of a man, and that can sort of make us think that, well, he wasn't really a man, or maybe we still can't relate to him. He's a perfect human. I can't really relate to that. I really, can't really connect with that. Just because Paul uses his words does not in any way mean that he wants to take away from Christ's humanity. Think about the kind of human life that Jesus had. Jesus grew up with imperfect parents. Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. He grew up in a big household. He knew what it was like to do that. Jesus had a family history. 
In, Jesus, in the blood of Jesus, in his veins, flowed the, the blood of shepherds and of kings, of prostitutes and of queens. He had these kind of people in his family line. He's just like us. If you had all the documents of everybody that ever lived, some of you like ancestry, I like that, I like to figure out your family tree. If we had all the documents, we could find Jesus on the family tree. He's a distant cousin. I can't say exactly where, but he's that human, he's that real. He's in the family tree. He has human DNA. Men, when we struggle to grasp this, the strength and, and the desirability of Christ, think of what kind of man Jesus was. His father was a builder. The word is technon. It's frequently translated carpenter. But because of the region in which he lived, it's probably that he was more of a builder than a fine carpenter. He's working with stone. His father works with stone. His father works with rough lumber. Jesus, no doubt, grows up with calluses and scratched hands. Jesus is rugged. He is not, if you have any image of him as an effeminate, soft picture with blonde hair, you need, and I don't, I don't say this to be silly, you need to get that out of your head. Jesus is a man's man. And so I want you to understand that. He's gentle, but he's tough. Because then later in his ministry, what do we see him do? We see him fashioning a whip of cords, flipping over tables, and chasing people out of the temple. He's not soft. He is what every man would want to aspire to. He's that kind of a human He's a, he's, a, he's a descendant of David. And in that, we see David's a warrior king. And I think Christ is the same. We see that if we flip ahead to the end of our Bible, we see that Jesus is also a warrior king. Just not for those few years he was on earth. But he is a warrior king. He is gentle. He draws the weak and the poor, the fallen women, the children. There's something magical about him that people are drawn to. They're drawn to his gentleness. But in the midst of all this, he's also the kind who flips over tables in the temple because he is defending his father's honor. He was human, but I would suggest to you he was more human and more enchanting than we can imagine. And I think if we can ponder his humanity for a bit and to realize the kind of human that he was, it will help us to love him more. That's the whole point of him coming to earth, was to show us what God was like in the flesh. And as soon as we start to minimize his humanity... We start, to be, we start getting disconnected from the kind of person that he was. He came, he took the flesh on himself so that we could relate to God in the flesh. So this is what Paul started, this is what Paul knew. But that's his humanity displayed, but I would also suggest that his humanity is perfect. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.21, even though he was in the flesh just like us, yet he knew no sin. He had never sinned, he never knew sin. He was born without any original sin. He was not truly the biological son of Joseph, so he did not inherit that sinful nature. What would it be like to spend time with a person who treated you perfectly? Who forgave you? Who patiently loved you when you were grouchy? Who never did anything wrong? You know what it's like to be with a nice, pleasant person. And there are some people in this room and others you may have met. They're just a delight to be around. In many cases, because they've been with Christ and they're reflecting back. When I think of how Moses was on the mountain... And he had been with God and he came down. And the people said, Moses, put a veil over your face. You're glowing. Is I'm glowing? I don't know. He'd been with God and his face glowed. And I think that as that, 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 that analogy carries over, those that we most love, those Christians we most love, have been with Christ. And his glory has reflected back and it shines out of them. And so that's a glimpse of the kind of man that Jesus is. But I would suggest, and this is another very, very important aspect to hold on to, is his humanity is permanent. His humanity is permanent. For much of my life, nobody ever taught me this, but I always grew up thinking that when Jesus went back to heaven, he, he shed his human body, he went back to some spiritual existence. And I can't believe how many Christians I've talked to in recent days who've had that same concept. But I want you to know that Jesus' humanity is perfect, and when he went back to heaven and he went out of sight of the eyes of the disciples, he did not lose his human body. He is in human body right now. Put, look at your hands. I'm not going to you. put your hands there, but look at your hands. There are hands like this in heaven right now. They have scars, they're glorified, but they look like this. There is this, this is what Jesus is. He's human. He is a human being. And if we miss that, we miss so much of how we can want to know him and enjoy him. We know his humanity is permanent because Paul says in Philippians 3.21 that he will transform our lowly body, that it could be conformed to his glorious body. He has a resurrected body, and someday he will transform our fallen, sinful, unredeemed bodies to become the kind of body that he currently has. 
He has a human body. And he has risen from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has become the first fruits. You know the first fruits, that first apple that gets ripe, and you pick that, and you know a, a crop of other apples is coming. So if Jesus is the first fruits, if his body is the first to be raised from the dead, and all the other fruits are going to look like the first fruit, then we know that our bodies are going to look like his body. He has to have a human body, resurrected, glorified body. His humanity is permanent. So please dwell and think on that. When you're having trouble connecting with Jesus, understanding who he is, realize that he is a perfect human and his humanity is permanent. But he's not only human, he is also eternal deity. This was the big step that Paul had to take for him to come to know and love Christ because he did not want to admit that Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was truly the eternal Son of God. But we find when Jesus meets Paul or Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul is on his way to Damascus trying to get Christians into prison. And Jesus stops him in his tracks and Paul does not leave Damascus without, and says in Acts 9 verse 20, immediately he preached in Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Here he had gone to put Christians in prison for preaching that, and he starts to say the exact same thing because his eyes had been opened to the true reality of who Christ was. And I don't think we need convincing of Christ's deity. We, we, we teach that here. We believe that here. That's in our bones here. We know that Christ is the Son of God, the true deity. But I want us to look at just a couple passages. Look at, look at Colossians 1. In Colossians 1, Paul is just soaking in Christ. And if you see that, you see that's all he does in his epistles. He's just, he's saturated with Christ. And so when you come to know Christ, this is the Christ that you're coming to know. Colossians 1, verse 13 to 16. God, it says he, that's God the Father, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He, Christ Jesus, the perfect human we've been talking about, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist." He is the eternal Son of God. He is the one, the metaphor I heard in a song years ago, he threw stars into space. That's what he did. He is the creator God who was there with the Father in the beginning, speaking and creating worlds with his voice. He's the eternal Son of God. Paul will say in Romans 1, verse 1 to 4, he is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. And in Hebrews 1, although I can't quite say that I believe Paul wrote it, we'll give him credit for it if we need to, just to fit it into our sermon this morning. Hebrews 1, 1 1-4, God spoke in a times past by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. He has made Christ the heir of all things through whom he made the worlds. Christ is the brightness of his glory. He is the sunbeams that shine out of the sun. He is the express image of his person. Christ upholds all things by the word of his power. And by himself, by his own act, by his own will, by his own sacrifice, he purged our sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they have. Christ is eternal Son of God and perfect human, all put together in one. All of this in one. Paul, as best as any human could do, he held these things together and created this, this glorious picture. And we struggle to do that. We can say, well, he's God, so his life is easy. You know, I mean, of course it would be easy to obey his parents when he's God. But we, we're forgetting his humanity there. Or we say, well, he's God, he's in heaven now, so what good does that do me when I'm here on earth? I feel so disconnected from Jesus. He was a human that lived a long time ago. What, does, what, what difference does that make for me today? I think we don't want those thoughts to control our minds, but so often those are the thoughts that rise up when we think about Christ. But consider the contrast in Christ. Things that he is all at once and he is all in all. He is a lion and he is a lamb. He's a servant and a king. He is a priest and he is a sacrifice. He is God and he is man. He is the shepherd and he is a sheep. He is the maker of bread and he's the bread of life. He's the maker of light and he's the light of the world. Put those things in context and think about them. Just go one day a week. Take one of those 
God-man, shepherd-sheep, priest-sacrifice, and try to put that together in your head, and you will find the wonder and mystery. It takes a lifetime to ponder these things, but we must ponder them and try to fit them together if we will to see how wonderful that they are. Now, the danger here, this isn't raw information to put into our heads. This is not answers to Bible trivia. This is not doctrine to fight for if we don't have passion for his person. One of our daughters is taking some online classes, some Bible classes, and one of the wonderful things she shared with me, and I was afraid as I recommended this, this college to her, that it might become academic because seminary can be, Bible college can be academic, can be a little bit dry at times, but I was so encouraged because her professor said that this theology needs to lead to doxology. The content needs to lead to praise and worship or it's not truly theology. Some of us just love knowledge, we love to study, we love Bible verses, we love facts, we love parsing, we love you know, digesting Greek verbs. Some of, it's that, some of us love the history of the Bible, some of us love the archaeology of the Bible, some of us love the stories of the Bible. But if it only stays there, it's no value to you. All of this is meant to point us to the person of Christ. And thinking back to Philippians 3.8, these are the things that Paul came to know about Christ. And yet we ask, what good is all of that? What good is his person if it remains outside of me? C.S. Lewis has this wonderful talk where he talks about the weight of glory. And he talks about beauty. And he talks about the sunset and how much we love to stand at the sunset. Or we stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Or we stand in the mountains and we look at this vista. And he said one of the deep longings of our heart is that we stand outside of that beauty. And we long to enter into the beauty. You know, you, you, you see a beautiful picture and you try to come back and you describe it to somebody. And you're so frustrated because you can't put it into words. And, and this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, all of this information, as long as it's outside of me, it doesn't help me. It doesn't do me any good. He's good and I'm sinful. I don't belong with him. I'm on the outside looking in. He's grand and he's glorious, but he's up there somewhere and I'm down here. I'm disconnected. And so all of that I would say, the second thing about Paul is that Paul came to see that his own identity was changed by knowing Christ. His identity was changed by coming to know Christ. Paul came to see, and I think this is something we have to fight against so hard, Paul came to see that Jesus is more than a means to an end. Jesus is more than a ticket to heaven. I think we go off the rails, and I think this is so indicative of the, the, the skewed perspective we so often get. What's that famous way you, you, you get into the gospel presentation with somebody? If you were to die today, do you know for sure that you go to heaven? Let me tell you how. Automatically, we've made heaven a destination and Jesus' means to the destination. We haven't made Jesus the destination. And that's something we need to change in how we look at the gospel. Jesus is more than a means to an end. I was talking with Pastor Rodney and he reminded me of this passage in Matthew 13 where Jesus tells about the pearl of great price. And when a man finds a treasure in the field, he sells everything that he has to buy the field because he wants the treasure. And that's what Christ is. Christ is the treasure that we sell everything for because we've come to see the value and the beauty. We don't want anything else. I'll gladly give up my thing because we realize that getting, getting, in, in getting Christ, we get everything else. We don't really give up anything. Maybe for a time, but not for eternity. We count all things but loss. And so what Paul came to realize that he, in coming to Christ, he was no longer outside of Christ. He became connected to Christ. He became joined to Christ. And this gets on that concept of what we talked about, what Pastor Joe mentioned, this idea of union with Christ. Union with Christ has two aspects. There's an objective reality. I'll explain this in a minute. There's an objective component to union with Christ that never changes. And there's a subjective enjoyment of that objective reality that ebbs and flows with time. If you're a Christian, you've probably heard something about union with Christ or something of this idea. But if we're going to see and value Christ like Paul did, we have to understand and grasp this union like Paul did. What does union signify? What does union with Christ signify? Historically, the way the church has understood this, it is the deep, mystical, mystical as in unexplainable, connection between Christ and his people. 
It is a deep connection that we can't explain between Christ and his people. Paul started to learn this in Acts 9 because as Jesus stopped him in his tracks, Jesus said to him, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting me? We, I learned over the years, that there's lots of pictures between Christ and the church. There's a head and a body. There's marriage relationships. But we, I think what we, we fail to grasp, these are not concepts to memorize. This, these are ways to shape our reality. Jesus says, you're hurting my church. You're hurting me. This is how closely we are connected to Christ. This is a deep reality. And it's so deep that it requires several metaphors to illustrate it. In Colossians 1 verse 18, Paul says, He is the head of the body, the church. And just that phrase is enough. He is the head of the body. How closely connected is your head to your body? Ask yourself. I hope it's pretty close, right? Everything your body feels, your head feels. I want you to make this, the jump then to understand how close is Christ's head to his body. That is how close you are to Christ when you are in Christ. As close as your head is to your body, how deeply connected. You can't separate the two and still have life. Paul talks about marriage relationship. Ephesians 5. He says, men, this is how you treat your wives. Wives, this is how you treat your husbands. Because the way the world is set up, the way that God made the world, the marriage relationship is a picture of Christ and the church. And I really hope to get in that in a moment, but this is the reality. You know what the marriage relationship is like, those of you who are married. And those of you who aren't, I think you have a pretty strong sense of what the marriage relationship is like, how close that marriage relationship is. That's why divorce, that's why brokenness hurts so much, because you truly become one flesh. And Jesus, and Paul says, this is a deep mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And so what he's saying in that is marriage is the shadow and Christ and church is the reality. Marriage is the shadow. Christ and church is the reality. Let that sink in. Ponder that. Think about that. Look at the marriage relationship. That is the shadow, which is encouraging. If you lose a spouse, if you never marry, that's the shadow. Christ and church is the reality. That is what we should come to know and understand. The way that Paul will get to describe this is he talks about the Christian life as being in Christ. And that's all through the New Testament, but until, as for me, for Sinclair Ferguson and for others who helped turn the switch on, when you just see the phrase in Christ, you glance over it, yeah, that's how we talk about ourselves as Christians. Yep, that's a good way to say Christian. Do you realize that Paul never uses the word Christian? And that the word Christian only shows up three times in the entire New Testament. The word Christian is probably what the people who hated Christians called Christians. But that is not how Christians thought of themselves. They thought of themselves as being in Christ. They would have used the phrase, who are you? I'm a man who is in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? Christ took on human flesh, and in that sense, he united himself to humanity. That is profound. He became like us. But at salvation, Christ joins, himself, joins us to himself, and we become like him. We are placed inside of him. We are joined to him, and we are so closely identified with him that we cannot be separated from him. What are the implications of being united to Christ or being in Christ? At salvation, Christ is given to us. And in getting Christ, we get everything that is his. It's not like we trust in Christ externally, and then God gives us righteousness and hope and eternal life. Instead, we are given Christ. And in him, we have everything. I just think of God's perfect timing for this. The first class that we did on Union with Christ was back in September of last year. It was the day after Chandler and Adelaide got married. And so my mind was soaking in these thoughts. And they stood up here, and Chandler said, all that I have is yours. And that is, that's what I wrote that on top of Ephesians 5 in my Bible. Jesus said, all that I have is yours. He is the reality. Marriage is the shadow. Let that sink in. All that I have is yours. That is how he thinks about you. This is the objective reality we're talking about. If I'm a Christian and I sin, this is still what Jesus thinks of me. All that I have is yours. You are my delight. I can't wait for you to be with me. He loves me when I can't stand myself. 
That's the objective reality. The implications for this, we are given Christ. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 2, I have betrothed you to Christ. I have engaged you to Christ. We are now placed inside of him. We are now clothed with his righteousness. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. The father looks at him, looks at me, and he sees him. I feel my sin deeply as a Christian. I feel my failures and my, and my, my regrets every single day. God looks at me and he sees perfectness. He sees Jesus because I am inside of him. A pastor who wrote a book gives the illustration of one of his people in his church, he, lived in, he worked, lived, was in California, and this, this girl worked at Disneyland, and she had always been frustrated, and she'd always felt, like, how do people perceive me? How do they look at me? When I act this way, how do they think about me? And then she got a job, and her, her job was to be Mickey Mouse, and she had to get into the Mickey costume. And she said, suddenly, when I was in Mickey, they looked at me differently. They didn't see me, they saw Mickey. And it sounds like a silly and foolish picture, but it's so profound. God doesn't see me. He sees Jesus' perfect righteousness. No matter how I feel about myself on a day-to-day basis as a believer, I am in Christ. This is is why Paul wanted to know Christ and wanted to be with him. These are the implications. Now, we can feel that Jesus, yeah, it's great. He's human. I'm in him, but he went away to heaven. So what But Jesus says, when I go, I'm going to give you my spirit. How much closer can you be to someone than to have their spirit? Do you have your wife's spirit? You'll never have your wife's spirit or your husband's spirit. But you have the spirit of Christ inside of you. How much closer can you possibly be to someone than to have their spirit? We know what it's like to be in someone. We know what it's like to be in trouble. We know what it's like to be in fear. We know what it's like to be in debt. We know what it's like to be in love, perhaps. It's a consuming, controlling, mental and emotional mindset. And that's what it's like to be in Christ. Paul says, until we're in Christ, we are in Adam. When we are in Adam from birth, wherever Adam goes, I go. I, Adam's going, those in Adam are going for, headed for destruction, for judgment, for eternal separation from God. That train has only one destination. There's no exits. There's no on-ramps. There's no way to get off. You're on that train. You're on the Adam train until Christ puts you on the Jesus train. And when that train is heading for glory, there's no exit. There's no off-ramp. There's no way off the train. Wherever Christ goes, I go. It says you have been dead and you have died with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You've been baptized with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You're now seated with Christ. Where Jesus is, has gone, I have gone. Where he is, I am. And where he will is, I will be. That's the objective reality of union with Christ. And that never, ever, ever, ever changes for a Christian. But the challenge is is there's a communion aspect to that. There's an enjoyment of that union aspect. And I think for Christians, so often we we confuse the communion aspect of it for the the objective reality of it. Sinclair Ferguson asks the question, he talks about someone who's like, how are you related to, it suggests your wife's name, how are you related to her? He said, well... Or how's your relationship with, with so-and-so? It's like, well, I kind of feel distant right now, kind of feel separated right now, kind of feel discouraged right now, not really close right now. He said, no, that your, 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 your relationship to your wife is that you're married to her. That relationship never changes. No matter how you feel about that relationship, you may not always enjoy the relationship, but as long as that marriage is, remains intact, that relationship does not change. But the communion, the enjoyment, the fellowship of the union does change. There can be union with Christ without much enjoyment of communion with Christ. Communion will f- and enjoyment and fellowship with the union will fluctuate throughout life, but it doesn't change. Samuel Rutherford has another quote. And he says, in our fluctuations of feelings, it is well to remember that Jesus does not allow any change in his affections. Your heart is not the compass that Jesus sails by. When your feeling for Christ is good one day and bad the next, and you feel close and you feel distant, remember that your heart is not the compass that Jesus is sailing by. The truth and of the objective reality of you and Christ is constant and continuous no matter how you feel 
once you are in Christ. When our hearts are cold and He feels distant, we realize our sin will hinder our enjoyment of Him. The sin can come in between our enjoyment of our fellowship with Christ, but it does not change our relationship with Christ. And I think, for me, what has begun to change is as Christ becomes closer and I become to fellowship with Him more, pleasing someone is such a much stronger motivation than being afraid of their judgment. When you come to truly love someone, you want to do what pleases them. And how much stronger that is to motivate you to do what's right. Like, I don't want... I love Jesus, and when, when I sin against Him, I feel that strain. I feel in your marriage relationship, the child-parent relationship. When that relationship is good, you want to do what pleases someone. Rather than saying, would you want to be caught doing that when Jesus came back? That's not the kind of motivation you need. You need the motivation of, do you love Jesus so much that you don't want to hurt Him? That you don't want to be separate? That you don't want anything to break this connection that you have with Him? So, communing with the union, the connected point that we have with Christ that never changes, and the, the, the enjoyment, the fellowship with Him that does ebb and flow, Pleasing Him becomes the great motivator in our lives. I want to do what makes Him happy. How do we do that when we can't see Him? We have His Word. And it can sound, it can sound trite. It can sound empty. Like it say, yeah, I know it's His Word, but yeah, I don't hear His voice. But Jesus was the Word before He became flesh. Jesus has always been the Word. In the beginning was the Word. When, when we read the Old Testament, Jesus is speaking. When we read the New Testament, Jesus is speaking. Listen to his voice. Don't, and I think we watch the series on the charismatic challenges that, that are going on, I think that because we don't know how to find Jesus here, we look for him somewhere else. It's because we don't know how to find him here, we know we were made to enjoy God, and if we can't find him here, we'll go seeking for him in the wrong place and creating some other idol, some false image of him in our, our, in our minds, and we, we pursue that. So how do we do that? We ponder his word, and he speaks to us. We think of Him as we pray, and he, we speak to Him. We dwell on His character, His affection for us, and how tightly we are connected to Him. We imagine Him being the ark, and we're inside that ark in a world of chaos. That ark is clearly given as a picture. Noah's ark. It was clearly given as a picture of our protection and our safety in Christ in the midst of judgment. So you, you, out, you go out there Monday to Friday, and, world's, and the world's chaotic. The news is chaotic. Everything's discouraging. Picture yourself inside that ark. That's something solid that you can hold on to. Jesus is the ark, and I'm inside of him. As we dwell on this reality of Christ as head and man and wife, head and body. So we can know all the right facts about Christ, but they will be of little value to us. They will not stir affection in us if that knowledge remains external. It's when we come to Christ and we are united to Him that we share in all that He is. That relationship never changes, but our experience of the relationship does change. Could I read, just to close the second part, and we'll, we'll wrap things up here shortly. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. I'd like to read several verses here. If you take away a few things from this morning, I know there's a lot to think about. Learn to watch for the phrase in Christ or in Him. And put that, let that become the filter through which you see the Bible. It would take a semester or more to, con- to cover that concept, but I hope I've opened your eyes a little bit to some of what I've seen. But in Ephesians 1, verse 3, listen for all the in hymns as we close the second part. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Dwell on that, in Christ. He's blessed us in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved, 
In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. And it goes on and on and on. And you'll see this everywhere in Paul. Paul looked at life as I am a man in Christ. And when I was given, when I was placed inside of Christ, I got everything. So Paul has gone from a man who once despised and hated Christ, who came to see the true humanity and the eternal deity of Christ. And yet he, he knows that if that stays outside of him, that's of no value to him. And yet his whole identity becomes changed as he becomes a man in Christ. His affection for Christ begins to dwell because, you know, Paul didn't just say, well, I'll, I'll get to know him when I get to heaven. Paul has already gotten a taste. He can smell. Joe, you always use a steak illustration, right? <laughs> he can smell the steak cooking. He can smell the pie baking. And that's what we can get now. There's more of Christ to know and experience in this side of eternity than we've ever imagined. And the more we get to know him and experience him here and enjoy him now, the hungrier and hungrier we get to see him face to face. That's what Paul strove for. That's what he wanted. It wasn't like, well, I just have to kind of get through this life and then I'll see Jesus. I, he's, I desire to depart and to be with Christ because I already smelled it. I can already taste it. And so the third point this morning then, was Paul came to see that the most glorious thing in the world was to be with Christ. Paul longed for that faith to become a reality, to become, to be able to see it. I think that Christians look to heaven as a place where we, we get rid of our trials and our suffering. They're way out of trouble. And, and for, I would say for, for years, for many years, to be honest, maybe others of you have had this. That heaven was a better, real, better, better alternative than hell. But truthfully, I'd rather just stay here because heaven just felt distant, foreign, separate, not quite sure what that's all about. But if you see heaven as a place where the one that you love is, then you're anxious to get there. If we don't know and enjoy Christ as we should here, we won't have much of a desire to go to be with him there. If he feels like a stranger... We may know that we should see, want to see him, but we don't. The picture came to me, as I was thinking about this, of a, of a child whose father's been off in the military, and he's, the little boy's never seen his dad. And his dad's coming home to the airport, and his mom is saying, your daddy's here, the baby's boy's maybe three or four. How does that child respond to a dad who desperately loves him and can't wait to see him? You know what it is? That little boy's like, he's a, the dad's a stranger. He know, the relationship's there, the dad loves the boy, but because the boy doesn't know the dad, he's not, he's not running out to meet and, and hug him. And I think that picture holds true for us. Our Savior is the dad in that story. He's in the far country preparing a place for us. He wants us to be with him where he is. And yet, because we don't know him very well, we're not very anxious to get there. But Christ is anxious to see us, and he's not a means to the end. Paul says, as long as we're alive in the body, we're absent from the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul's great desire was to depart and to be with Christ. He had come to know and thrill and knowing Christ in this life, and he couldn't wait for that gap to be closed. And Paul said, I know, temporarily I'll leave this body behind, I'll go to be with Christ. But Paul ultimately wasn't looking for a departure from the body. He wanted his eternal, his heavenly body, his, his body, resurrected body. That's what he wanted, because he knew that he would enjoy Christ in the flesh, in person, throughout all eternity, in a world that Christ was going to make new. So we, at the moment we die, we are immediately unconscious. We are immediately unconsciously in the presence of the Lord. There are human hands in heaven waiting to welcome you home. There is human DNA in heaven waiting to welcome you home. Death is not leaving home and crossing a dark and distant ocean to meet a stranger you've never met. The more you come to know Christ, the more you build on the foundation, just the, the scratching of the surface that we've done this morning, the more you get that, the more your heart will grow and desire. Paul is singing David's song. What did, they, what, did, what did David sing in Psalm 16? In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the song that, 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 that Paul is singing. I can't wait for my body to be redeemed for me to be in the presence of the Lord and to enjoy him throughout all eternity. I had to move quickly there. I don't want to keep you through. If you do have steak cooking, I don't want to ruin that. Um, but for Paul, to enter eternity was to be with the one that he already knew and loved by faith. To enter eternity was to be with the one he already knew and loved by faith. 
I'll reference Rutherford another time. He says, Do not be cast down. If you saw who was standing on the shore, wait, holding out his arms to welcome you to land, you would wade not through only a sea of wrongs, but through hell itself to be with him. Do you know how much Jesus wants you to be with him? He says in John 17, Father, I will, I desire that those you've given me may be with me where I am. Jesus wants you to be with him more than you want to be with him. And that's what Paul's message would be. I want, just last passage I want to read is, is the, the, the close of Philippians 3. To, uh, to, to read that again. Philippians 3 and verse 8, 9 through 11. I think this summarizes everything we've been saying this morning. Paul says, Yet indeed I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage, trash, dung, refuse, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, that I may know him, not the resurrection only, but that I may know him and the the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. The more I suffer here for him, the more I understand his love for me and what he went through, the more I connect with him now. The fellowship of his sufferings, that I may be conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul longed to be with Christ. He had a desire to depart. He has no regrets. He doesn't look back to his days of popularity. He's sitting in this stinking prison, and he's writing a letter. And he says, I have no regrets about when I was putting people in prison. I don't look back thinking, oh, I wish I could go back to those days. He said, that's all garbage to me. I've lost my appetite for all of that. I look at at that as trash. Having to know something of Christ, I want more of Christ. And I want us to encourage us, there is more to learn and love and enjoy in Christ on this side of eternity than we ever imagined. But you've got to dig for it. You've got to want it. You've got to believe it's there. You're not going to dig for treasure you don't think you're going to find. Put the, put the desire in. Open up the Word. Pray. Read, read, get some resources and, and start thinking about this. We are no longer in Adam, destined for destruction. We are in Christ, destined for eternity. I would encourage you this morning for believers. We can so often love everything about Christ but Christ himself. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You talk about what your heart's full of. Listen when you talk. How much do you talk about the person of Christ? We can talk about homeschooling. We can talk about doctrine. We can talk about songs. We can talk about church meetings. We can talk about church dinners. We can talk about kids' ministry and adult ministry. We can get so consumed with everything all around the edges of Christ and never talk about Christ himself or rarely talk about Christ himself. If you've just met someone, if you just had a baby, you want to tell everybody about your baby. If you just got married or if you just got something new and exciting, your heart's full of it and you can't help talking about it. So listen for yourself. it's, It's discouraging at first. To realize how little you talk, you may, have, you may be talking about Christ. Listen to yourself. What are you talking about? Because that shows you where your heart is. That shows you the affections of your heart. So for believers, I would encourage you, listen to what you're saying. When you're with other believers, how much are you actually talking about the person of Christ? Like, are you experiencing him enough to have something to say about him? Do you feel his presence enough? But I would also encourage those who don't know Christ Yes, we can say, come to Christ or you face judgment and you face punishment. But I would also say, don't miss out. Don't miss out on the most wonderful person you could ever imagine. Don't miss out on Christ who will restore all things. God is reconciling the world to himself. God is restoring all things. God will make all things new. Peter says we look for new heavens and a new earth. We look for an eternal, permanent, solid eternity. Don't miss out. Don't let yourself get caught up with the trifles, with the cars and the trucks and the houses and, and whatever it is that's, that has you distracted from the person of Christ. If you don't believe that Christ is enough to fill your heart, then you'll flip out on your phone and you'll scroll through YouTube. I've done it. I know it. I know it's true. It's, it's, it's the easy, it's, the, it's like I'm, I'm bored, I'm tired, I'm just flip up on my phone and I'll scroll. Don't do it. It's empty. It will leave you hollow. 
Only Christ can fill you. And I'm saying that for believer and unbeliever. You are missing out on the greatest opportunity of eternity if you do not pursue Christ. As Rodney read this morning, Galatians 1.10, do not so quickly, do not turn from him who has called you. Be like, be like Paul. Be like Samuel Rutherford. Start to get a taste for how much there is to know and enjoy of Christ. And that's why, and as I was thinking for a title, Lisa, you know, and it's like, what's the title? I, like, I, hate, I hate coming up with titles. But then I was so thankful that Fanny Crosby's song came to my head, Take the World But Give Me Jesus. And that was, that, was, that, was, that was the summary of it all. Take the world, but give me Jesus. And when you take the world, you're not really taking the world because everything is in Christ. And when you get Christ, you get the world back and you get it for eternity. Let's pray.